Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Father, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, you may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you and it's good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here and we are glad as always to have you with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. remember several years ago being out with my family. I think we were at the zoo, if memory serves. And I don't remember which one of my boys it was, but whichever one it was, was young enough that they were not yet um, consistently verbal. I mean, they would say things and they would uh, make, you know, say phrases that you could make out, but they weren't to the age where you, could have, where you could converse back and forth with them. But they were old enough where they were toddling around and running around and, uh, and, and all those kinds of things. And we'd had this conversation with them throughout the day that they needed to stay near us, that they needed to pay attention to where we were. And at one point, I remember seeing whichever son it was, they both looked the same, so it doesn't really matter, whichever son it was, um, walking off next to a stranger. And he was just kind of in that stage of life where if he saw a guy in jeans and a jacket, he assumed it was me. And so he's walking next to this guy and I'm standing behind him and I can see him the whole time and he's just kind of walking next to him and stopping next to him and all those kinds of things. And so finally, when I called out his name, he turned and he looked to me and he kind of realized what was going on with a look of terror. He looks up at the guy that he's standing next to and then he looks back at me and runs over to me. And as we talked about last week, this idea of how do you know to whom it is that you belong as a Christian? How do you know your identity in Christ? What we're talking about today is this idea of how is that actually borne out? What is the evidence of your sonship, of your daughterhood? How do you know to whom it is that you belong? And the answer is we recognize our Father's voice. We call out to him as Father. We hear him call out to us. And that's really at the heart of what it is that Paul is going to address in the text that we have uh, this morning. If you remember, we talked last week about the really, this really being a sermon in two parts, that last week's text and this week's text are so connected, they're so related, and it's part of one consistent thought that even though there's a chapter break in between, it's really the same idea that Paul is looking to communicate in this text this morning. 
If you remember, the book of Galatians was written to the church at Galatia who had begun to conflate the law and the gospel. They had begun to view both of these things as necessary pieces of what it was to be a follower of Christ and a citizen in good standing within the kingdom of God. That if you were going to be identified as a Christian, you needed not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also needed to obey the full Old Testament law. And there were a group of people known as the Judaizers who had come into the church in Galatia to teach them this idea and to try to convince them of this notion. And so last week, as we addressed it, Paul had written and begun to give illustrations to the Galatian church to try to help them understand their position as children of God. That their interaction with the Father was not as slaves, but it rather was as sons. And through these illustrations, Paul was trying to sort out the roles of the law and the gospel in their lives. And this morning, as we come to chapter 4, Paul is continuing this same argument, and he expands on this familial illustration to make this point to the church. And he begins this way in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, that is the one who is the recipient of the inheritance of the father, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, or your translation may say the Lord of all. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So last week we addressed this idea that the law was given to be a guardian. The law essentially functioned in the Jews' lives as a nanny. It was intended to inform them of who their God is. It was intended to make them aware of the standard of God's holiness, to put before them God's righteousness so that they would have, so that they would have an unparalleled view into who God was, the standard of perfection and holiness and righteous that belong, righteousness that belonged to him, and that they would be able to see him through the law as being so perfect and so above everything else that they would know his character. The law was therefore intended to discipline them when they got out of line. That the role of the guardian in the life of the ancient world was to raise up a child, particularly as it pertained to discipline. The law was intended to show the children of Israel their need of salvation, that through the law they would realize that they needed someone else to do on their behalf what they were unable to do for themselves. But that law was never actually intended to bring salvation in and of itself. The law was intended, in other words, to lead them to the gospel. It was intended to be a pointer in their lives to the work that Jesus alone could actually do for them. And so Paul says here, these Jewish believers who lived under the auspices of the law and trusted God for salvation prior to the coming of Jesus, they were still very much sons of God prior to the coming of Christ because they had the promise that had been given to Abraham and they had faith that God would ultimately bring about their salvation. And because of that, all the promises of God's blessing already belonged to them. But they were limited in their access to it because it wasn't the appointed time. So Paul is sort of illustrating the law like this. Imagine if I had some family heirlooms, things that had been handed down generation to generation and things that were incredibly valuable to me, things that identified me with my family and my family with me. And just imagine that maybe I had an old hunting rifle and some antique china that had been handed down from generation to generation. 
I mean, I would certainly want all of those items to to eventually end up with my children, to stay in the family, to be a reminder of their heritage and, and to be a fulfillment of a promise to them. But my kids right now aren't yet at an age where they could appropriately receive those gifts. I mean, just imagining what my boys would do with a hunting rifle and some china makes me nervous, right? But there is a day coming where those things that are earmarked for them those things that in fact already belong to them would actually come into their possession. And Paul is saying that's how the law was functioning in the lives of old covenant believers. They had a glory that belonged to them. They had a salvation, an inheritance, the promise of Abraham that had been extended to them. But until Christ came, they were still under the watchful eye, the disciplining hand of the law. Verse three, in the same way, We also, when we were children, spiritually speaking, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you begin to look at commentaries and what they have to say about this particular text, there's all kinds of different perspectives on what those elementary principles actually are. There's a bit of ambiguity around it as to what Paul is referring to. Some scholars think that this is a reference to the pagan gods and the selfish lifestyles that the Galatians had had prior to coming to know Christ, that they had grown up worshiping the pagan gods within Greek and within Roman culture, particularly Greek culture in this case, that they grew up enslaved to their own sin, committing sins before, before the watchful eye of God, but totally unaware of the sin that they were participating in. And that sin, therefore, had such a stranglehold on their lives that they were enslaved to their own lusts and that they were enslaved to the religions of that portion of the world. And certainly that is a possible translation, but I think in light of the broader context of the whole book of Galatians and what Paul is going to say coming up in verse 9, I think that Paul here is actually referring to the Old Testament law as elementary principles that enslaved. In other words, think about why the law was given. The law was given so that these old covenant believers could learn the basic elemental, elemental pieces about God. They were given laws that taught them how to behave and how to act and what to think and what to do. But the law, as we talked about at length over the last couple of weeks, could not empower them to actually do those things. All it could do was inform them of what they ought to do. And in their own power, they would do as best as they were able to obey those laws, perhaps even curbing their worst instincts, but being unable to change their hearts. So, Paul says, when the law was in place for Jewish believers, they were severely limited. The future promises belonged to them, but the rules and restrictions were so stifling that they were essentially living as slaves. And so what Paul is telling the Galatians here is, listen, by insisting that everybody obey the laws of Judaism, you're running back to a slavery under a guardian. You're running back to the apron strings of your nanny, You're reverting back to childish practices that were intended to show you your own spiritual lack and your own infancy, and you're pretending that by doing so, you've become wise and enlightened. So one commentator said it this way, by calling the law an elementary principle, Paul was giving the law teachers from Jerusalem a remedial education. These Judaizers had been telling the Galatians that the law was a graduate school for the gospel. But Paul insisted that being under the law was actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. For the Galatians to go back into the law would be like a PhD repeating kindergarten to work on his alphabet. 
If they wanted to be spiritual grown-ups, they would have to advance beyond the law. And I love that picture that he draws. He's saying you've been given the gospel, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. You've seen in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the law, the completion of all of the commands that were ultimately given to you that you could not perform. But now you're going back to the law, to the elementary principles, to the ABCs of faith, trying to teach yourself something as a graduate class that actually belongs to spiritual infants. In other words, Paul is saying, stop insisting on more and more and more rules and acting like that makes you more of a spiritual grown-up. Stop pretending that being a spiritual child makes you more of a man. Grow up, says Paul. Move beyond the law. Move into the gospel. Put aside the rules and the rod of the law. Grow into the freedom of your full sonship in the gospel. Freedom, not law, is the symbol of spiritual maturity. Think about this within the context of our own lives. One of the interesting things when you watch kids play on a playground is that it doesn't take long before kids begin to understand the importance of rules. And it doesn't take long before they begin to make up additional rules while they are playing games. And no one is a better enforcer of the law in other people's lives than little children. Because as soon as one child breaks a law, all of the other children around him inform him immediately that he has broken the law. And hopefully, as we have moved into adulthood, we have left those instincts behind and given each other a little bit of freedom in one another's lives. Why? Because that's part of what maturity looks like. And in the very same way, that applies to us spiritually. The insistence on spiritual laws being applied to other believers is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity. But notice then how this gospel promise actually comes about in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now we're going to move through this verse relatively quickly, but I don't want you to miss what's happening because each of these small phrases is packed with spiritual significance. Paul is explaining how we moved from guardianship to sonship, how we moved from slavery to family. And here's what he says. He says, first, it happened at the fullness of time. Now that language comes from, among other places, Matthew, uh, or rather Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and it's a reference to this idea that in God's sovereignty, he had appointed at the appropriate time the sending of his son as the savior of the world. That there was a particular time set forth in eternity past by God the Father in which the fulfillment of this particular promise would come into place. That the need for a guardian would begin to pass and that the freedom of the gospel through Jesus Christ would begin to take root. And when you think about that phrase, fullness of time, there's all kinds of different ways that we could begin to understand that. One of those ways that we could understand it is with the fulfillment of prophecy. We think about things in the Old Testament where it says that one is going to be sent who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And we find in the opening chapters of the Gospels the story of John the Baptist who comes forward into the nation and says, you need to understand that repentance is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe that a Savior is coming. And right on his heels comes Jesus Christ. Another way you could understand the fullness of time is what was happening in the world. 
Jesus is born right at the peak of Roman civilization. This is a time when communication and travel and the written word were all easily moved from one place to another. For the very first time through the course of humanity, all roads, as it were, led to Rome, right? There was this connection internationally with the influence of Rome that brought in all of these disparate tribes and tongues and nations under one common umbrella. And at just that moment, Jesus comes into the world. But the most proper way to understand the fullness of time is that this was the time that God had set. For whatever reasons and for whatever purposes he had set, this was the moment that the coming of Jesus Christ was going to happen. And he says that in that moment, look at this phrase because I don't want to miss it, God sent forth his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible references the idea that God sent forth his son. And here's the reason that I highlight that very familiar concept and idea because there are many, probably many even within this room, who, who love Jesus personally and the concept of the fact that there is this God-man who understands them and still loves them, but they really wrestle with the idea of a father God. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. For some people, like we talked about last week, they may have constructed an artificial wall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They view Old Testament God as being angry and heavy-handed, constantly judgmental and getting after people, willing to mete out punishment at a moment's notice, and they see New Testament God as being this loving character, and because of that, they don't like the picture that they see in the Old Testament. They don't like this idea that there is a God who would judge or a God who would pour out wrath. And for people who begin to struggle with that idea or who wrestle with the idea of God in the Old Testament, this presents a solution. For many people, they struggle with the idea of God as father because of their own human experience. Maybe you had a father who was abusive or maybe you had a father who wasn't on the scene or he was disconnected emotionally or he just wasn't around the way that you'd hoped he'd be. There were standards in, in his, in, that he held for you that maybe you didn't feel like you met up to. For a host of reasons, you wrestle with the idea of the fatherhood of God because of your experience with your own earthly father. And what Paul is going to do in the next verse is blow up any objections we might have to the goodness and generosity of God the Father. See, many people view God the Father the way that Renaissance art depicts him as this somber character with a white beard and an intimidating glare. Many people view the Father as if he's standing in heaven, looking down on earth, rubbing his hands together with anticipation as he waits for you to mess up so that he can mete out punishment. And so often what people will do is pit Jesus against the Father, as if Jesus stepped in and insisted that the Father be kind when the Father had no inclination to do so. But nothing, according to this verse, could be further from the truth. Notice who it is that sets into motion the means of our salvation and our redemption. It's the Father. That the Father, in order to make good on his promise to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, chose this moment in the fullness of time to display his sovereign grace and his loving posture toward us. 
that he loved you that much, that his compassion and his care and his concern for you who was in rebellion against him and headed towards hell was so deep and so passionate and so real that in eternity past, he paved the way to salvation. And he did it, according to this verse, by sending his own son. That the father who for eternity past had lived in unbroken communal love with his beloved son and the Holy Spirit determined that the son would be the means of salvation. So imagine, just for a moment if you can, being willing to give the one whom you love the most in all of the world, to be able to give that one to those who hate you and to those who curse you, so that through that loved one's sacrifice, you could have a relationship with your enemy. Now imagine if that love was divinely amplified on an eternal scale. That's the sort of love that the Father has for you. And not only was this son going to be given, but he was going to be born of a woman. Now, why is that important? Here's what one commentator said. Some Christians seem to imagine that Christ's divine nature takes the place of his soul. This idea, though well-intentioned, is wrong. Christ was a perfect man with a rational soul as the immediate principle of his moral actions. In other words, Christ had a human self-consciousness. See, for many of us, we wrestle with the divinity of Jesus Christ, and for some of us, we struggle with his humanity. See, for some of you, you may have no struggle at all with his divinity, believing that he is in fact God, but you really wrestle with the idea that he was man. I mean, if Jesus never sinned, how can he know what it's like to be me? If Jesus is in fact God, if he is the God-man, if he has both a divine and a human nature, then isn't it just God in a human shell? But no, what we're told, according to Scripture, is that he is both fully God and fully man, that he had a human soul, a rational soul, as the commentator said it. He had a human self-consciousness, which means this, that Christ, though he was fully God, didn't float through life in a zen-like state. He was faced with the same human limitations and temptations and pains and losses and struggles that you face. That he laughed and he wept. That he hugged his mother and that he threw over tables in the, in the temple. He knew what it was like to be fully human. And, says Paul, he was born under the law which means he was held to the same standard of God's perfect righteousness as everyone else who has ever been born under the standard of the law. He had to live perfectly, blamelessly at every point of the law, and he did so fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. That is the human experience to which we are invited. And not only did he live under the law, but he died under the law. He took the law's penalty on himself for you and for me, and he did this, according to Paul, to redeem us. That through his fulfillment of the law, we could be freed from the burden of the law, spared from the penalty of the law, released from the slavery of the law, liberated once and for all. 
so that finally, according to Paul in that verse, we might be adopted as sons. See, through Jesus Christ, God the Father made good on the promise he'd given to Abraham. He made a new spiritual nation with citizens too numerous to count. Through Jesus, all the nations were blessed. And through our adoption into the family of God, we are able to experience the same perfect, unbroken, communal love of the Father that Jesus has always experienced. Now, how do we experience that? Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now this verse is so packed, and just like we talked about for the last two weeks, there's sermons worth of understanding to be explored when we start talking about the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer. But here's ultimately what he's saying. The same Spirit of God that existed pre-eternally with the Father, the same Spirit of God who moved across the face of the waters in creation, the same Spirit of God upon whom Jesus himself was dependent has been given to you. That the Holy Spirit of God lives within you if you know Jesus Christ, that he's giving testament to your adoption. He cries out, Abba, Father, in your heart, which literally means, dear daddy, or dearest father. It's a term of childlike affection for a father. Not a far-off, distant royal title. It is the cry of a young child for his dad. And he enables you, likewise, to cry out to the God of the universe as your own loving Father. And at least for me, as I was reading this verse and thinking about its implications this week, I realized how undeveloped my own understanding of God as my Father is. Because it is so easy for me to slip into a mindset that views God as someone to be approached through particular words and particular fancy prayers and particular structures. I rarely, I think, if I can confess this, I rarely call out to him with the kind of paternal affection that's being described in this verse. Because it sounds weird. It sounds weird to address our Heavenly Father as Daddy, particularly for a grown man standing in front of a room full of people. It just sounds weird. And I don't think his point is that we need to use that particular term. His point is that that is the posture of our heart. That there is such a level of comfort in coming to our Heavenly Father. That there is such a level of assuredness in His love and His affection and His acceptance of me that I can come to Him with that kind of childlike affection. That through the indwelling and the empowering Holy Spirit of God, our words and our heart's cry is carried directly to the throne room of God. And as we stated in the, call, in the call to worship, we need not summon you into our midst, for you are here. We need not call you into the secret places of our hearts, for you are there. In other words, he knows me. He created me. He designed me. He wove me together in my mother's womb. He knows my frailties and my failures. He knows the things that I am most ashamed of, the things that no one else knows. He knows the deepest struggles and the deepest regrets and he knows the deepest fears of my heart and he meets me in those moments. He is not intimidated by them. He's not ashamed of them. He doesn't turn his back at them. Like a loving father, he meets me right there. 
Unlike any loving father, God loves to be with you and he loves to talk to you. And again, I'm not sure we really believe that. We know that it's God's duty and responsibility to respond to us because of this familiar relationship we have. But we kind of think, I think many times, at least many people, presume that he just kind of puts up with our prayers. That it's a matter of formality for him. Do you understand that God the Father never grows frustrated with you? He never grows frustrated with cries for help if you belong to him. He delights in you. And he loves you, as we talked about last week, because he loves you. He has set his eternal affection on you and it will never, ever drift away. I want you to hear this quote because it was so startling to read for me, but so eye-opening to read. I came across this in Philip Ryken's commentary on Galatians. I want you to hear what he says. He answers the question that Paul's going after in this text. How do I know that God is my father and that I have a share in his eternal estate? Not by trying to work my way into his family. Certainly not by circumcision or keeping God's law. Not by anything I do at all. Luther said, there is no slavery in Christ, but only sonship. Therefore, my obedience can prove that I am a servant but not that I am a son. My sonship is based entirely on the redemption accomplished by the Son of God. God's Spirit confirmed this by enabling me to call God Father. Servants can only say Lord, but sons are able to say Abba, Father. Think about the implications of that for a moment. That there is no amount of obedience you can perform to prove to yourself that you belong to God. Because if you could prove to yourself by virtue of your own obedience, your sonship, then the Pharisees would have been the most self-assured people who've ever walked the face of the earth. And yet Jesus Christ calls them whited sepulchers. They are painted gravestones, beautiful on the outside, but inside they are spiritually dead. There is no amount of obedience that, can perform, can, can, that you can perform to prove to you your sonship because that is not how sonship is proven. There is no amount of work and no amount of obedience that will prove to my children that they belong to me. Do you know what proves to them that they belong to me? That I listen when they call for daddy. That they hear my voice and turn their heads. And the invitation of this text, therefore, is to stop trying to prove it to yourself and instead allow the Holy Spirit to provide that affirmation. That's what Paul talks about later in in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, where he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
And when we take a slave mentality into our relationship with a loving father, we are making him a boss, not a father. And God is not interested in a boss-employee relationship in which you are forever driven by your own insecurities in order to prove your own worth to the business. That doesn't bring glory to God. It doesn't make much of God. It doesn't speak well of God. No, but what God is infinitely interested in is in hearing his children call him Father. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, said it this way. God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have a status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. This comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language not of slaves, but of sons. So brothers and sisters, what does it look like for you to go to him as father? To set aside pretense, particularly in your prayer. To set aside pretense and to set aside formality and maybe just as a matter of training yourself to go to him in a way where you talk to him the way that you would a loving father because it's exactly what he intends for you. And in doing so, to have the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, give testament to your own spirit that you in fact are a son. To remind you of your sonship, your daughterhood. And then like a spiritual father himself, Paul extends his concerns for the Galatian believers in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You can hear the desperation in the words of Paul. You can hear the cry in his voice. He's saying to them, look, it was one thing when you were enslaved to these elementary principles of this world before you knew Jesus. But now, after receiving his acceptance and his power, you're running back to judgment and impotence. And he goes further and he says, some of you even have your calendars out and you're marking down all the holy days and the festivals and you're thinking that somehow your observance makes you a son. You're back to acting like a slave. Are you nuts? Is what Paul is saying. And the line that carries so much weight here is when Paul says, how can you do this now that you've come to know God or rather have come to be known by God? He's saying, if you've forgotten for just a minute that you've come to know God, have you forgotten that God knows you? Forget what you think about what you know about God for a minute. What does God know about you? And his point is this, God knows what's actually going on in your heart. 
He knows your struggles and he knows your failures and he knows your sins. And likewise, he knows your affection for him and he knows that you care about him and he knows your, he knows in the moments when you love him, the affection that you have for him and as well the moments that you struggle, the frailty that you have. So why are you trying to impress him with your external observance of the law when he knows your heart and what he cares about is your heart? He knows your frailty, your worries, your anxieties, your needs, your weaknesses, and God is responding to you with help and hope and healing. And now you're going to try to pull the wool over God's eyes by observing a calendar of holy days and running back to a law that you've already failed and in the case of Gentiles wasn't even intended for you? Don't give up your freedom for that. Don't give up the assurance that God the Father has already given to you to run back to a law that will give you nothing but doubts. And when you find yourself in moments in your Christian life doubting your salvation, the question is, what are you looking to for your assurance? Because if you're looking to your own obedience as the evidence of your sonship, you are looking to something that cannot give you assurance. Thank God. Because if my sonship depended on my obedience, I should be very scared about my sonship. If I could lose my salvation, in the words of one pastor, I would have already lost it. But if my sonship rests fully in what God has already declared to be true about me, if it rests in the fact that the Holy Spirit of God indwells me and cries out in my own moments of weakness, Abba, Father, giving testament to my own heart of my sonship to him, then thank God I can rely on something that is stronger than my own behavior for my assurance. See, what this should convince us of in part is the seriousness with which Paul talks about freedom. And for many of us, we are far too willing to give up our own Christian freedom and exchange it for slavery. Paul here is almost militant in his tone. And yet how casual are we in our approach to the gospel? How willing are we to give in to the demands of religious legalists and blue noses and scolds? How willing are we to indulge our fears and our insecurities by running back to the law that is weak and worthless and as Gentiles wasn't intended for us? How often would we rather have the temporary affirmation of the religious world or the world at large rather than to bask in the freedom that the gospel provides, satisfied to have the eternal affirmation of our loving Abba Father? And Paul's call here is really the call of Hebrews chapter 4 which I'm not going to quote, but which you can read on your own time. And what Paul is saying, at least in part here, and what Hebrews chapter 4 says explicitly, is that in many ways, the work of the believer, the thing to which we are called, is rest. Which for many of us is the hardest work of all. My call is to rest. Hebrews chapter 4 is going to say, strive for rest. Work for rest. 
rest from the demands, the worries, the expectations, the condemnation, the performance, and rest in his goodness, his sovereignty, his provision, his adoption in love, rest in his indwelling spirit. And in the moments where you struggle with rest and where you doubt your position, where you doubt the status even that was provided by Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, the call then is to experience your sonship through the testimony of the indwelling spirit in your heart. To cry out in the words of Romans chapter 8, Abba, Father. Abba, that little Aramaic word, two syllables, like dada or mama. Words so simple that any child can understand, and yet words that for adults are so difficult to say. Brother and sister, rest in your sonship, in your daughterhood. Rest from the law. Rest from things that cannot grant assurance. Rest in the assurance of the Holy Spirit's indwelling power in your life. Rest in calling your God Father. Would you pray with me? Father, in many ways, what we're saying this morning is the same thing we've been saying for weeks. But God, we're repeating it not because it's a hobby horse of ours, but because it is something that through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Apostle Paul, you want us to understand and we struggle to understand. And so God, for those in this room who wrestle with the idea of you as a father, either because of a misunderstanding of who you are and a misreading of your word, or because of a, a twistedness of their understanding of a father, because of their, their earthly human experience of a father, God, would you show yourself to be that father that maybe they've never had before? Would you convince them of your goodness, of your grace, of your pursuit, of your love? God, the redemption that we can receive through your son and the experience of our sonship that we now have through your spirit. God, we thank you that we see the Trinity at work in this text, that the eternal communion that belonged to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has now been extended to us. And that for those who know Jesus, for an eternity forward, we will experience that relationship with you. And God, to those who are here who've never experienced that and don't know you and are not sons or daughters, are not fellow heirs with Christ, would today be the day where they would hear the call, where they would respond to the moving of the Spirit in their hearts, where they would receive the good gift of sonship. And would we worship you for it? And it's in your name we pray. Amen.